I remember uh, a little over two years ago, my wife and all, my wife and I uh, sensed a, a, a calling, a charge, along with uh, Andrew and Bailey to, uh, to plant a church or, or to take the good news of Jesus into the core of Omaha. We felt like God called us to bring uh, the good news of Jesus right to the middle of the city and in, the, and in hopes that we could make the, the city look different. In the beginning, if you were around, you may remember that, that we used a, a phrase that was a, kind of a vision phrase that went like this, in Omaha as it is in heaven. Some of you remember that? We believed and we still believe that, that God has, has called us or, or sent us, God the creator of the universe has commissioned us to start a church to make Omaha look a little bit more like heaven. To start a church where people's lives would be changed, where we could start to see poverty erased in Omaha, where we could start to see homelessness eradicated, where we could start to see neighborhoods look a little bit more healthy, where we could start to see violence lessened and addictions broken, where we could start to see uh, neighbors begin to love each other. That is the vision. We could see people who were without hope, people who were lonely, begin to experience hope in Jesus and belong to a family of God. And although that that calling may have been the clearest to the four of us at first, the reality is if you are a part of Providence Church, that calling is for all of us. And I remember uh, in those early days, about two years ago, uh, having so many conversations with, with a lot of you over coffee or in our living room. I remember the first conversation, the first person I ever called was a, a city group leader uh, who's here this morning named Zach. And I remember calling him up and saying, dude, uh, let's go eat a burrito and, and talk about something. And I remember sitting on the patio of Roja back in my dairy eating days, RIP, those were good old days. Um, but uh, I remember sitting down saying, dude, could you pray about this, about joining in this vision to see God transform Omaha? And he said, you know, interesting thing, uh, I was talking to my fiance and we sensed that God was doing something new in us, that we might be experiencing a change sometime soon. And I remember countless more of you sitting down in our, uh, around our dining room table and just inviting you in, asking questions while my kids were running around and making a lot of noise and, and casting vision and you asking questions and, and praying into it. And then one by one, or for some of you, two by two, you're saying, yes, I'm all in. Yes, I'm all in. Yes, I'm all in. And slowly that conglomeration of, of people became known uh, what is what we know as right now Providence Church. Our first gathering uh, met in the living room of our house. Uh, it was comfortably would seat about eight, and we had, I think, 24 or 25 people in there singing and praying that night. It was a fun time, and, and now, from those original 24 people, there's about 250 people that call Providence Church home. And in case you have forgotten, like it's so easy to forget in church, um, Belonging to Providence Church doesn't mean that you do uh, that you attend a Sunday morning religious service and that you maybe come for a little encouragement. Being a part of Providence Church means that you are a, a part of a family that has a mission. We still have this same vision moving forward that Omaha would look different, that it would begin to look 
a little bit more like heaven. That's what we hope for, that, we, that would be the effect of what providence does here in Omaha. So, so think, for me, think with me for a second. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to ponder. If you think about Providence Church 10 years from now, what do you imagine this church would look like? Maybe you think about it and you think, well, hopefully we would uh, be able to see uh, a bunch of baptisms, right? Maybe we'd, we'd get to see city groups multiplied further into to more corners of the city. You think, man, 10 years from now, maybe we'd have a couple churches that have been planted. Uh, maybe we'd sent some people overseas. Okay, that's 10 years from now, but let me ask you this. What about 20 years from now? <clears throat> what do you imagine might happen? I mean, hopefully right? There would have been hundreds upon hundreds of life transformation stories. Hopefully, uh, we're not only planning churches here in Omaha, but maybe there's a Providence church in Chicago and one in Minneapolis, and and maybe we're extending into other places. Hopefully, we've sent uh, dozens of missionaries and missionary families to go overseas to do the work of God all around the world. Hopefully, there's a whole lot of multiplication 20 years from now, right? What about this? One more. What about 40 years from now, okay? And it's kind of hard to think about. You're like, okay, 40 years. Am I going to be alive in 40 years? I don't know. But, but what will be happening in Providence Church? I mean, hopefully it's a whole lot more of the same. Multiplication, just thousands of lives. Like, that's what we would hope for, right? Well, here's why I have you just thinking or imagining 40 years down the road. So in our time together today, we're going to look at the recipients of the letter of Ephesians. Last week, uh, Andrew took us uh, through the author, Paul, of the letter. And this week, we're looking at the recipients uh, in one and a half verses. We're going to look at the church in the area of Ephesus. Now, this church or this area of Ephesus, this city is one of the the Bible's most well-documented cities with stories and, and letters that were written to this church. We know quite a bit about it, actually. And one of the interesting things is we see in the book of Acts, we can see the very beginning of the church and how it got started and how it got planted. But the other thing is that we can fast forward 40 years at the end of the Bible and see a different picture than this vibrant church that got planted at the beginning. In Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, in chapter 2, there are letters written to churches, and there is a letter written to this same church, Ephesus. And in there, it states that that they have done a good job at refuting false teaching and, and maybe believing the right things, but it accuses them of losing their first love. This church that we're going to be studying, uh, lost a sense of, of hope in the gospel. They lost this deep connection and reliance on Jesus. And man, I would hope that 40 years from now, that the last thing that, that we would be described as, as is Providence Church the, church, the church that lost their first love. Really, that's a, a danger for any church, which is why Paul, in part, wrote this letter to the Ephesians to tell them, hey guys, you have to know this above all. If you're going to be a vibrant community, it is all about Jesus. You are sustained by Jesus. You are propelled forward by Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so this Ephesians letter is a grand refocusing on the important things of what church life is about. And if we, here in our church, uh, 
if anything ever supplants that, if anything ever rises above being all about Jesus, you, by the way, have my full permission to plan a mutiny and overthrow the leadership. Or you can come up here and you can tackle whoever's preaching heresy. I don't care. You can get them out of here and then you open up the book of Ephesians and say, hey, this is what a church is supposed to be about and this is what it's supposed to look like. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at one and a half verses, short, real short today, a uh, short amount of verses. I don't know if the sermon will be short. That's, that remains to be seen. But we're going to look at being uh, first set apart in Jesus, and then we're going to look at being sustained in Jesus. Set apart and then sustained. So we're going to look at this idea of being set apart first. And I want you to look through the first half verse that we're reading in Ephesians 1.1. Starting halfway through, uh, this is what it says. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we're talking about the church being set apart, but before we talk about what they look like or how they are set apart, I want to talk about who are these people that are set apart. So we're going to talk about the who. Now, if you notice, you read through this and you see, oh, well, we know who this is. It's the, the, the church or the saints who are in Ephesus, Right? It says it right there. Well, uh, Ephesus was known in this day as a cultural uh, and uh, like religious hub. Of all the cities in the area or in the ancient Near East at this time, uh, scholars would say that this was maybe the third or fourth most influential city and largest city uh, in the area. Uh, On top of that, uh, they were known for a few things. One was the temple of Artemis was there. Uh, Artemis was this goddess in the Greek world. Uh, that was known to oversee the process of fertility. Some scholars will say that there was temple prostitution happening and all sorts of crazy things happening. Other people might refute that a little bit, but there might have been some crazy stuff going on there. Ephesus was also known as a center for magic. They were obsessed with this power of the spiritual. And so you have all these things you can imagine. In summary, Ephesus was not a God-fearing or Yahweh-fearing place with a Yahweh-fearing people before Paul arrived. Now, here's the interesting thing about this all, this setting in Ephesus, is, is uh, a bunch of, if you're a, a nerdy Bible person, put your glasses on and take your pens out, because uh, here's some details that some of you might be interested in. So, some of the earliest manuscripts, people have argued over this for, for centuries, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the words in Ephesus in the, in the, uh, uh, in the earliest documents. And so you're like, wait, Ephesians wasn't written to the Ephesians. Well, that's what some people believe. And, and because of that, you kind of have two camps of people. And a lot of times in these arguments, um, in, uh, there'll be like a few people in one camp and a whole host of people in another camp. But on this one, people are pretty split down the middle. Like, was this written to the people in Ephesus or was this not written to these people? And, and the gist is, for the people who believe it was written to that city, they say, well, you know what? Um, if you take that phrase out in the original Greek, this sentence is awkward or almost incoherent. So there's no way it would have just had that blank in there. Plus, there are a lot of other early manuscripts that actually include in Ephesus. So for those reasons, we believe it was specifically written to these uh, Ephesian people. The other side would say something different. They say, well, you know what? Because of those three manuscripts, that would lead us to believe that that, that wasn't originally in there. Plus, in the letter, there, it's kind of impersonal. Like Paul a lot of times uses names in his writing. He a lot of times talks about specific issues in his writing. And in Ephesians, he doesn't do that. And so they're saying, hey, I think it's not written to those people. Now, 
after reading through this and thinking about it, the reason I mention this is because um, I want you guys to be informed, and plus, context always helps for what we're talking about. It always helps you read the Bible better. But I have a tendency to slightly lean toward the camp that would say it is written to the church in Ephesus, but... Whether it was or whether it wasn't, the reality is, is that um, Ephesus, which, which was not really a mega church, it would have been more like a network of house churches, um, this church in this city would have been one of the recipients of this letter. Even if it circled a little bit more farther around to the area of Southwest Asia Minor where the place was, this would have been kind of the, the hub of church activity because of its influence, because of Paul's presence there, and because of how the church had taken off. So it is for sure to them. It's the question is, is was it only to them? And so we're going to kind of look at that lens. We're going to look a little bit more at the church in Ephesus today. So that's, that's some of the nerdy stuff. I'm going to, okay, bunny trail, scholarly bunny trail over. We're going to talk about... Uh, not only who was set apart, but how they were set apart. So I think this is going to be helpful to think of us and how we as a church are set apart. So you see at the very beginning, it says to the saints who are in Ephesus. What do you think of when you think of the word saint? Maybe the, the New Orleans saints because it's the NFL playoffs, right? But, but when we think of someone being a saint, you think of in our culture, it's like someone who's like, like perfect, spotless. They've never do anything wrong. They're like the best of the best person that you could ever meet. I think of my grandma. She was like the nicest person ever. I never heard her complain. I never heard her say a cuss word. She took care of people all the time. I mean, she was the nicest person ever to walk the face of the earth. And when my cousins, all of us would descend on her house, a bunch of us in her house, we would destroy her house. We would go run outside and, and, and like play football and basketball and, and get dirty and come inside. And she would wash all our clothes till like 1am every night. She just sacrificed all the time for us. I thought my grandma is the closest person to a saint that I could think of. Well, this definition of saint is completely different than that. When you hear saint in the Bible, it is, uh, it is referring to someone who is consecrated or set apart for God's service. That's not someone who's just nice or someone who seems to be squeaky clean or, or perfect. Paul is telling these people that this church this community. He's saying, God has set you apart. You are set apart. That's who you are. And when you are set apart, you will look and act differently than people around you, than the culture around you. Now, could I pause for a second and just ask Providence as a church, as Omaha looks in on us, would they say that we are set apart? Do we look any different than the people around us? What about you personally? <clears throat> if someone took a look at your weekly calendar, if someone took a look at your bank account, if someone uh, just took a look at your relational interactions during the course of the week, would they look at you and say, yeah, yeah, that person is different. They're maybe a little bit strange. They're, they're set apart in a way. You know, my whole childhood, I, uh, I thought I was a, a weird Christian kid. Well, 
truth be told, I was a weird Christian kid. But I, was, I thought I was a weird Christian kid, and I strived to uh, just fit in or be relevant in a way. Because I thought that if I could be relevant to people, then, then maybe Jesus would be relevant too. And no joke, I'm 37 years old, and it wasn't until the last year that God started to reveal to me, hey, Jared, people aren't going to think Jesus is relevant because you're the same as them, but rather because you are different than them because you're set apart, because maybe you look strange in a way. <clears throat> this is what it looked like for the people in Ephesus to be, uh, to be set apart. So uh, I'm going I'm to tell a story from the book of Acts. So imagine this huge city uh, hustling and bustling with all sorts of activity. You have this uh, huge temple uh, that's dedicated to the goddess Artemis, and this city kind of revolved around the temple practice, all sorts of craziness going on. And then you have all these magic practices, and Paul comes walking into this city. This is in Acts 19. He comes walking into this city, and he starts showing the power of God by healing people and exercising demons. And all of a sudden, these magic people are looking at him like, whoa, what's going on? And in Acts 19, you find uh, this story of these seven sons that were watching Paul. There were seven sons of a Jewish high priest, by the way. And and these seven sons, they come, they they see Paul, and they're like, hey, I think we should try that. What he's doing, the thing where he's exercising demons out of people, we should try that. And so they come up to this demon-possessed guy in Acts 19, and they say, I command you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims to come out of this guy. They wanted to get this demon out. And in verse 15, it says, you may know this story. In verse 15, it says, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Then it says that the possessed man jumped on them, beat them up, ripped off their clothes. And then the next verse, it says that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Everyone heard about this in the area, and they began to see God's power through Paul. They began to hear about the gospel and this Jesus through his preaching, and they started to change. They're like, oh, I think I want what he has. Even the magicians in the city who are obsessed with this supernatural power recognize, hey, there's a greater supernatural power over there. And so these magicians started believing in Jesus so much so that it says they had, all these guys who believed in Jesus came together and gathered in the city and threw down all of their magic books and they just lit them up in fire. They're like, hey, we're done with this. We're going to walk in a new way now. They lit them all on fire. They burned up and it was the the equivalent of 50,000 days wages. I'm not very good at math, but I did uh, the Omaha equivalent using the, the median household income, and that would be over $7 million worth of stuff in our city today that they burned up. Are you willing to give up what's valuable to be set apart? So get this, later in the chapter, uh, it, it describes another scene. So you heard me talk about the, the temple of, <clears throat> of Artemis before. So this temple wasn't necessarily like a church building like we think of now, but it was like a, a city center where everything was happening. So people would come there, yes, to worship. Who knows what kind of crazy things were going on inside. But also, it was kind of an attraction of sorts. And there were people who made money uh, doing business outside of this temple. There were silversmiths specifically that were making 
making these silver statues that were these little silver copies of this temple Artemis. So you could kind of have this religious uh, kind of souvenir of sorts that you would have. I mean, it was not just a, a, a temple or church type building, but it was kind of like the Eiffel Tower is to Paris or the Great Wall is uh, to certain areas of China where it's this landmark, but it's also almost like a, a tourist trap of sorts. And what happened later on, this is the same chapter in Acts 19, um, um, there's this silversmith named Demetrius who gathered a bunch of people together and they started this gigantic riot and they were upset because, get this, there were so many Christians that had been converted in Ephesus and there were so many people who were turning from worshiping Artemis to worshiping God. There were so many people who stopped buying the goods outside the temple that this silversmith, his name was Demetrius, he came up and he said, hey, we've got to do something because our sales are tanking. There were so many people who changed how they lived and how they spent their money that it was looking completely different. The whole city's economy was changing because Christians were living set apart. This is how the Ephesus church was first planted by people completely embracing this set apart life. And in the middle of the chaos, uh, it says in Acts 19.23, this is a great verse. It says, uh, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was their name for the church or Christians in that day. They said, there was no little disturbance from the church. In other words, Jesus invaded this city. Lives started to be changed. Lifestyles started to be changed. And it affected how the foundation of how this city operated. There was a large disturbance in the way of life throughout this entire large city. Man, could I pause and say, uh, may this be said about Providence Church one day, that there was no little disturbance in Omaha concerning Providence Church. That, that there was no little disturbance, but rather we shook the foundation of how the city of Omaha operated by living this set-apart lifestyle. When I think of Omaha, when I think Omaha it is, falls in line with with so many other places in America, man, we are consumers. We love stuff. We love uh, having money. We love making money. We love having it in our bank account. We love spending money. We love gathering stuff that's worth money. But what if we could disturb that as a church? What if we could live in a different way that wasn't all about getting and spending money, but we were radically known for people who gave away money? What if, what if we became known and started influencing other people, not just to, to spend for ourselves and do things for ourselves, but rather we were radically others-centered? A community that, that doesn't care about our stuff and our bank account, but rather we fight for the less fortunate, the homeless population. We treat the refugee population like no one else is treating them in Omaha. We start to see the jails become more and more empty. We start to see uh, recovery programs and AA rooms look a little bit emptier because of that. We start to see our neighbors loved and cared for like they never have before. And it doesn't just happen here, but it starts to spread out to the whole city where there is no little disturbance. Or what about this? Uh, could in, in maybe 10 to 20 years, 
our set-apartness be so evident that this, um, this kind of homebody culture in Omaha, the, the thing where uh, people just like to be comfortable, people are kind of isolated, you know the kind of thing that drives people to, to literally drive to their home after work and open the attached garage door, drive in, close the garage door, never be seen, and if they ever do go outside, it's into the backyard where there's a fenced-in backyard where no one can see or hear them. What if we started to change that? What if we started actually loving our neighbors? What if we actually started doing life together? What if we could start serving people next door to us, loving people next door to us, and we started spanning out into new neighborhoods where we started to change the culture of neighborhoods to where we created flourishing communities of people who did life together and loved one another? That would be no little disturbance. We believe that Jesus wants to cause a disturbance of sorts in Omaha through Providence. And the question is, is how would you play a part in that? What might you have to do? What might you have to give up? I think it could be a little thing sometimes. Just yesterday, we were driving home from a birthday party uh, in the family minivan. I drive a minivan, by the way. Don't judge me. Um, we were driving home in the snow, and as we were pulling in or pulling up to our driveway, uh, the the neighbor next to us, she's a 60-something-year-old woman uh, who's single. She was out shoveling her driveway, and uh, Carrie said, hey, let's go talk to her. Let's, let's go say hi real quick. And I was like, oh, no. And, and because of my Christian guilt that I felt on the inside, and how am I going to say no to my wife being nice to our neighbor if I'm a pastor, I decided, okay. I'll reluctantly drive over there. And so I did. I reluctantly drove over and I rolled down the window. I'm like, okay, you take it from here. And uh, it, it actually did happen that way. And she, uh, she struck up this conversation and, and started talking. She said hi. And all of a sudden they started making these connections. And she started thanking her for uh, a gift that she'd given our kids a couple months back. And they ended up uh, they exchanged numbers, which they had never done before. And then they set this, because they, we just went over there and talked to her, set this tentative date uh, for her to come over to our house. She's never been inside our house before, but set a date for her to come over inside of our house to read books to our kids because she loves reading books and our kids love having books read to them. And it's us loving her by including her in what we're doing. And it's her uh, getting to use her love of books to bless our kids. Man, I think it's the little things of being set apart, like saying hi to a neighbor that could end up causing a large disturbance in our city. That's a little picture of what it looks like to be set apart in Jesus. Now, I want to talk about being sustained in Jesus. So let's look at verse 2 here. It's real short. Um, It says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of us look at the introductions to Paul's letter. We skip over them to get to the good stuff. You look at this, you're like, okay, this is just a greeting. It's like to whom it may concern or whatever. But I want to say that that Paul is very intentional about how he writes every word. Paul is communicating with these words right here that, that grace and peace are how Jesus is going to work in their church and through their church in order that they would be sustained. He specifically chose those words as, a, as their method of sustenance. Now, 
We have some new young parents, quite a few actually, and actually some people who are expecting as well in this room. And so there comes a time when you are a new parent for a lot of us that don't have our lives together. There comes a time where you realize, oh man, I eat Burger King and Taco Bell for lunch and I eat or I drink Dr. Pepper all the time. and, And before I go to bed, I eat half a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Like if I feed my baby like this, things are not gonna go well. Like they're not even gonna get into kindergarten at some point. And you think about this, you're like, I have to figure out how to be healthy. Like if I let my kids eat what they wanted to, they would eat a steady diet of marshmallows, uh, uh, blow pops, and probably a, a little bit of Orbit gum for dessert. They would probably choose to drink LaCroix too, which is strange, but probably the healthiest thing out of all those. And the reality is, that ain't going to cut it. That is not going to sustain them, right? We have to give them this steady diet of meat and vegetables and and fruit in order that they can grow and be healthy and, and be sustained. Now, here's the thing. The diet that sustains a healthy Christian community is very simply the grace and peace of God through Jesus. It wasn't just a random thought that that Paul put these words in here, grace and peace, but he actually uh, borrowed from greetings from the culture. So Jews and Greeks, uh, when they would write letters, um, they would both write uh, uh, who the letter was from, who the letter was to, and then the Greeks would write the word rejoice. The Jews would write who it's from, who it's to, and then they would write the words mercy and peace. But Paul specifically here says grace and peace. He says the word grace on purpose. One of the most uh, respected scholars on the book of Ephesians, his name is uh, Harold Hayner. He says this about how or why Paul uses the word grace. He says the explanation of it is God's unmerited or undeserved favor in providing salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death and enablement for the believer. He said, it is no about grace. It is no mere introductory cliche. It is the gospel in one word. Paul's hope for uh, the people of of Ephesus is that they would understand grace, that they would remember grace, that they would look back and recount the acts of grace, and they would even extend grace to the people who are around them. And if you take a second and think, think about the grace timeline that you see uh, uh, for the people in Ephesus. It was grace that Paul met Jesus and got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, right? So that he was converted to Jesus only uh, a little while later. It was grace that called Paul to be a missionary and church planter to the Gentiles. It was grace that, that the Holy Spirit led Paul to the city of Ephesus and kept him there for about three years. It was grace that when Paul was able to preach to these people in Ephesus that they heard and believed and responded to him. And it was grace that that the gospel, that a gospel movement was started not only in Ephesus, but in all of this Southwest Asia Asia Minor region in order to, to make Jesus famous in this area. Grace was flooding this place. And then you think about peace. If grace is Jesus' acts toward the people, peace are the results of the acts. Think about this. Uh, Paul 
and God were once at odds. They were hostile, or Paul was hostile toward God, and, and now there was a peace between God and Paul. Paul and Christians, uh, there was a huge amount of hostility between Paul and Christians, and now because of the gospel, because of grace, there was now a peace between Paul and Christians. The Jews and the Gentiles in the area are all over the world, and they hated each other, but now there was a new church forming, and there was peace between the Jews and Gentiles. There was an odd, diverse crowd of of, uh, pagan magicians, Jewish magicians, uh, worshipers of Artemis, and Greek and and Jewish people all over the city, all of these diverse people. And and then now there were peace because they were worshiping under the same roof in the same community. There was a peace between God and this new, unique community. This grace and this peace are only possible through Jesus. Jesus. It truly is a a mysterious union of Christ and his church, as we've subtitled this sermon series. Now, when we think about our timeline as a church, uh, we have been sustained by the grace and the peace of Jesus. Man, if we could take a moment and pass a mic around here this morning, we could probably hear 150 different stories of how God's grace first came to us when we first trusted in Jesus. For some of us, uh, we were kneeling beside our bedside as a small child. For some of us, uh, we saw the grace of Jesus for the first time at a college fall retreat. For some of you, maybe God arrested your heart uh, when you were uh, on a car ride by yourself and he got you alone in the quiet and you realized who Jesus was for the first time. For others of you, uh, you had the gospel explained to you and you understood and believed over coffee with a friend. Maybe that friend even brought you here and you're here together today. Grace has been evident all over us. You know what? I, I love this idea too. A, a couple Sundays ago, not many people were able to come, but on December 30th, two weeks ago, uh, we were able to do something that was one of my favorite memories in all of our church's history. And that was, uh, we had this pancake feast. That wasn't my, well, that was a good memory, but that was the favorite part of my memory. They were good. Whoever made them, they're good. Um, but what we did uh, is that we kind of went old school and we walked a mic around and we passed it around for people to tell stories of God's grace of what had happened in, in the year 2018. And slowly people stood up and I remember, <clears throat> um, I mean, just a few of them that are coming to mind. One is uh, uh, Kelsey, a young woman here who has um, been struggling with passing out uh, daily for, for years and years and trying to figure out this kind of medical conundrum, what's going on. And she stood up and said, hey, for the first time, I've been a couple months and I haven't uh, been passing out. And I think of a guy in our church, Ben, uh, who stood up and he said, man, I have, uh, uh, there was an unexpected uh, divorce that happened uh, and I wasn't expecting it. It was crazy, and uh, it left me in a strange place, but God has uh, done some incredible healing in my life. And not only that, but now I have this incredible loving community of people who have surrounded me and gathered around me and love me, and they become my friends. And not only that, but they even come to my comedy shows in the evening. They're real friends. And I remember a couple women telling stories that very much mirrored each other and standing up and saying, Man, I was caught in addiction and it was God's grace that I was uh, arrested or caught in my addiction, essentially. And for the first time because of that, I've gotten to know who God is and I have started to become free of my addiction. The grace fingerprints 
of God are all over this place. And peace. Uh, one of my favorite stories of peace in our church's history goes back to before we were planted. Uh, many of you know that Andrew and I led college ministries from across the city from each other, from different churches, uh, working toward the same students. Um, and one of the interesting things that developed, uh, maybe some between staff, maybe some between students, is there was an interesting kind of division or almost like competition. Sometimes it was friendly and sometimes I'm like, I'm not so sure this is friendly, like between some of these students. But there was this division of these two ministries that, that at times maybe butted heads. And over the years, Andrew and I had uh, gotten to collaborate on some stuff and we became friends. And then an unlikely act of God's peace, he called us together to do this church plant together. And some of you, some of you are students from those two different college ministries. And now you are here together by the peace of God, united with people who in the world's eyes or maybe several years ago were maybe kind of at odds or maybe a little bit in a friendly way, hostile toward each other. And now we are gathered here together with a sense of peace under the banner of Providence Church, but even better yet, under the banner of Jesus. Amen. These stories of grace and peace in our community have really only, uh, they've only begun. We pray that Jesus' grace will bring peace to, to thousands more in Omaha, to the, to the homeless population, to the refugee population, to our actual neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members who don't want anything to do with Jesus. We pray that over the coming years and over the coming decades, uh, they would get to be a part of this movement. <clears throat> In Providence, I'm going to say one last thing because here's kind of our reality check. So this church in Ephesus, when it started, it was it was first introduced. Jesus was first introduced to these people in Ephesus by this super preacher, this winsome uh, guy with a charismatic personality. His name was Apollos, like one of the best teachers in the day. He introduced Jesus, and then that was followed up by these people in Ephesus being invested in by this ministry power couple. They were like super disciples, Priscilla and Aquila. Maybe you've heard of them. And then after that came along uh, the one who planted the church, uh, who is Paul, the greatest missionary and church planter of all time. And then after that, you know who pastored the church sometime after that? It was Paul's right-hand man, his understudy, the one that he called his own son. If anyone was like, uh, who would, would be able to follow in Paul's footsteps, it was Timothy. And Timothy pastored this church. And then after that, the one who pastored the church was a man by the name of John, who just so happened to be maybe Jesus's best friend on earth. Now you talk about a stacked team of people. You think the Golden State Warriors have a good roster. I mean, like this was the best of the best of the best. Yet 40 years after, when first hearing the name of Jesus, they had lost their first love. Providence, if we want to live out God's calling in Omaha to see this city look different, it's not going to be by Gabe's creative music. It's not going to be by uh, Andrew's seminary degree or his preaching. It's not going to be by my structure of setting up city groups. It's not going to even be by our crazy, talented media team who makes amazing graphics and and videos for us. It's not even going to be by our amazing super volunteers, so many of you who spend so much time and energy and effort to give to Jesus. It is um, not going to be because of that, but Providence, we must live as saints set apart in Jesus, sustained 
by the grace of Jesus and propelled forward, moving forward with the peace of Jesus. So if the question is, is what are we going to be or who are we going to be in 40 years, it rides solely on Jesus. Let me pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for um, this encouraging letter to the Ephesians. And we thank you uh, that it does not rely on us um, to um, be super talented or better than other people or have the most amazing strategies. But the reality is, is everything that we've experienced, um, everything that every uh, f- spiritual fruit that we will see in the future, all will come from you and we can rest in that. But God, may that make us be hungry to live life set apart, to be on our knees in prayer, to, to uh, love you and devote time to you and really connect deeply with your heart. Could we be a church that 10, 20, 40 years from now is still seeing incredible acts of your grace and your peace in us and through us? Jesus, we love you. Would you lead and guide us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.